Friends, ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome to our fourth lesson. Um, let's welcome Lisa and Mariana. It's great to have you guys here. Welcome, welcome. Okay, so this is lesson four of our course, This Can Happen, our JLI course, all about Mashiach and the Messianic era and the Jewish belief in a better future for all. This is one of the most fundamental Jewish ideas that exists, and this is the subject of our discussion over these six lessons. I was about to say six weeks, but as you have noticed, it's going to take a little longer than six weeks, just because we've had a few weeks, um, a few weeks of a, uh, where we didn't have class. But at this point, hopefully, please God, we should be fairly consistent. All right, I'm going to mute everybody just to have a nice clean background, and then feel free to jump in um, at any time with questions by unmuting yourself, etc. Okay, so they tell a story. They tell a story about a... A boy who goes to Hebrew school, Sunday school, and comes home one day, and the mother asks the child, asks her son, how was school? And the son says, school was, school was great. It was fantastic. What did you learn? So he said, we learned the story about General Moses. No, you didn't hear that wrong. It's not General Motors. It's General Moses. So the mother, being very skeptical, turns to the child and says, what's exactly the story of General Moses? And the son says, well, apparently, so the Jewish people were kidnapped by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so Moses got together an army. He was the general. He got together an army and they began engaging in guerrilla warfare against the Egyptians. They poisoned the wells and messed up the water supply and wreaked other sorts of guerrilla warfare havoc on the people. And um, eventually they busted out of Egypt, but then they were chased and they got to a sea. So they got, the, um, they got the engineers, the Corps of Engineers, to build a bridge over the sea. But meanwhile, after the bridge was built and they crossed over, the Egyptians followed. But the Jews had laid, um, uh, I don't know what the right word is, um, explosive devices on the bridge. And they also were covered by some aircraft and tank uh, fire. And they bombed the bridges. The Egyptians fell in. And they drown, and that was the end of the Egyptian kidnapping of the Jewish people and at, at the leadership of General Moses. And that's the story that the son tells to the mother. And the mother says, is that what you learned in Hebrew school today? And the boy says, no. But if you heard what my teacher said, you definitely would not have believed him either. All right, so that is... Yes, okay, there you go. So that is a little bit about uh, General Moses, but the reason why I mentioned that is because, oh, Jerry, I wasn't paying attention. Did you do the, um, you got the thing? All right, I was talking too much. It wasn't a good joke. Uh, <laughs> All right, I'll take it, I'll take it, I'm with you. All right, so Jerry does the rim shot, and I said, Jerry, where's the rim shot? And he's like, nah. This one didn't deserve it. Okay, so getting back to our class, today's class, we're going to look a little bit about history. We're going to look a little at history, which is why I bring up this story, which you'll see in a moment. I first want to reset. We've had three classes over the span of five weeks, and I feel like it's important to make sure that we're all up to speed. I'm going to do this for about 60 seconds. A quick recap how we got here. So in lesson one, we spoke about the physical promise of Mashiach. What I mean by physical promise of Mashiach, I mean like what are the material blessings that are in store for the world? Maimonides writes this, it's in the prophecies, in Isaiah, etc. It's going to be a world filled with peace and plenty. 
all good, all the time, no fighting, no hurting each other, only good things, and certainly we could use such a world. We spoke about that in our first lesson. In our second lesson, we spoke about the spiritual side of the Messianic era. What will things look like spiritually? We explained that the world will be filled with the knowledge of God, saturated with divine consciousness and awareness, like the waters fill the ocean bed. That was the second session. In our third session, which we did two weeks ago, third session we covered something actually phenomenal. And that is, we explained that uh, the Messianic era, Mashiach, is not something extrinsic to the world's condition or to the human condition. It's rather something intrinsic. It's like the treasure in the mountain. Remember we spoke about this? Yes? Do you remember the treasure in the mountain as opposed to the treasure or the reward from the mountain? So there's, there's digging the mountain and getting reward, and then there's digging the mountain only to discover that the mountain has the treasure inside. This world, that was very sweet of you, Ellie. This world is a treasure and has the treasure inside of it. This world is a beautiful place even though so often it doesn't appear to be so. Our job is to peel away the layers that cover it. It's kind of like, I'm just thinking off the cuff here, maybe it's like a cataract, you know, that covers the eyes and obstructs the vision, and you need to remove that so you can see clearly, and our job is to remove the concealments and the curtains and the screens and the obfuscations, anything that covers over the truth, which is, this world is God's garden. So our job essentially is to reveal that indeed the very fabric, the DNA of this universe is divine and is godly. Okay, so that's, that's the core of what we're doing. And how do we do that? We explained last week. We do that through doing a mitzvah. Because what's a mitzvah? Sorry, two weeks ago. What's a mitzvah? A mitzvah is taking something of the world and utilizing it for a higher purpose. Basically saying, I know what this is. This is not just a piece of metal. This is a Shabbat candle holder. And I hold in my hands. I know it's yours, Reeves. This is what, you want to hold it? Can you hold it up for everybody? Okay, Reva had a, an end of year graduation today from her preschool, in town Jewish preschool, part of Chabad in town part of the uh, multiplex that is Chabana Town, which, of which uh, Intown Jewish Academy is, a, uh, is, is the adult education wing. So this right here is Riva's, what is it? Your candle. candlestick for lighting. What, what type of candles? Shabbat candles. You got it. That wasn't a trick question. Shabbat candles. That's very important. Yes, right? Beautiful, <laughs> She She's super excited. She is super stoked about it, um, and it even has, if you can, did you know it has your name on it engraved? Did we talk about that? I don't know if we spoke about that. see that. See that? This is live, this is live TV right now. I know. It has your name on it, and it's amazing. So here's the point. This could be either. You ready? This could be either a piece of metal, random candlestick, or it's a a holder for a mitzvah to channel divine energy and reveal the truth that the world is nothing but God's garden. So this is what every mitzvah does, including Shabbat candles, including kosher, Shabbat, tefillin, mezuzah, you name it, every mitzvah essentially does the same thing, of course, with a different element, with a different style, with a different, with a, with a, a slightly different way of doing it, but essentially all mitzvot 
are doing the same thing. So, that was the third session. In today's session, we are going to do the next big thing. I need to say this, I'm gonna say this maybe a few times, buckle up because tonight will blow your mind. There's no other way to say it. Buckle up, tonight will, yes, tonight will blow your mind. It's guaranteed to happen. It's, 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 not, it's not like, well, maybe you'll, f it, this is, we're gonna explore tonight something that's never been attempted before. This has never been attempted before. What we're going to do is, we're going to literally chart the course of our history to see if it's possible to, to understand that everything that's happened up until now has constituted a forward step along this march toward creating this home for God on earth. In other words, in this idea, in, this, in the framework of Mashiach, and that, we're, that we're, we're marching toward the Messianic era, has there been forward progress? Are we getting closer than we've gotten before? Are we perhaps further away than we've been at times? Are we getting closer? Are we further away? Are there just ups and downs randomly? If we're on this journey toward the Messianic era, can we see this reflected in the episodes of history itself? Plus, where does our generation rank in terms of spiritual development? Are we closer to the goal than before? And if so, how? Today's class is going to take a fresh look at history to chart its spiritual journey. I'm so excited to do this with you. This is an epic class. This is an original class. And I can't wait to jump in. We're going to begin by me asking you a question. And the question is, give me one word, unmute yourself, give me one word that describes Jewish history. One word that describes Jewish history. Speak loud so we can all hear you. Jump in. Complicated. Complicated, good. What else? Long. Long. What else? Persecution. Persecution, good. I heard Torah, good. What else? Tsaras. Tsaras, good. Tsaras means uh, problems or, or, or um, pain, suffering, difficulties, good. What else? Beleaguered. Say it again, Eve. Beleaguered. Beleaguered, good. Good. What else? Anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, certainly. What else? Straight? No, straight. How do you say that in English? Like, um... Oh, resilient. Resilient. Mariana, you mean you mean a straight path or not or not like that? No, like like to be um, faith. Oh, faith. Faith, but it's with with the conviction. Like conviction. Okay, good. Faith and conviction. Good. Good. Everlasting. Everlasting. Good. Eternality. Good. Excellent. What else? Hope. 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 Excellent. Let's do another few. Sorry? Survival. Survival, good. Mitzvah. Mitzvah. Last one. Torah. Torah. All right, we had it, but we'll take it. All right, I want to give you my word. All of I agree with all of the above, but I have my, my word that I want to share with you. I let you share with me, now I'm going to share with you. My word is roller coaster. And the reason why I say roller coaster is because, and I said this before, I leaked this before, maybe I shouldn't have. Um, 
Jewish history has its shares of ups and downs. In fact, I would say that it's pretty much extreme up or extreme down, and there's no middle path. It's like either things are amazing, like, oh my God, we got a temple, we got Israel, it's amazing, we have a monarchy, it's beautiful, King Solomon, like life is amazing, or we're dealing with, God forbid, the worst of the worst. It seems like it's either really high or really low, and it's not just like, we're living a normal life. There's nothing normal about Jewish history. It seems either to spike or to dip. It seems very extreme. Are you with me? Do you guys agree with this? Yes? It's like a roller coaster, up and down and up and down, and maybe a bit of a loop-de-loop and a corkscrew and a this and a that, but, but primarily it has its ups and downs. Right? There's the Garden of Eden, which is amazing. The Holy Temple, which is amazing. Then you have slavery and persecution and crusades and explosions, etc., etc., which we don't have to get into details right now. But it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of difficulty. So it's, again, high or it's low. And it seems, one could therefore argue, that with Jewish history, you could really say this with history in general, but specifically Jewish history, it seems like we're taking one step forward, and then one, or maybe even two, steps backwards, right? It seems like we're making progress, like, yes, things are good. We got the Torah at Sinai. Give out. We just danced around with the golden calf. Are you kidding me? It's like one step forward and a step or two backwards. It seems like there's an up, always followed by a down. And that's how a simple reading of Jewish history would appear. But here's what I want to tell you tonight. What if I told you? That all of Jewish history, all of it, notwithstanding the challenges, notwithstanding the difficulty, what if I told you that all of Jewish history has been a forward and upward march toward the world's destiny? What if I told you that every step along the way has been a part of positive progress toward the ultimate destination, which we know as Mashiach. What if I told you that history is not comprised of one step forward and one step backwards, but rather steps forward, all forward steps? And you probably say that I was, or that I am, pass me that key for a second, that I am a bit Meshuggah. You probably are going to say that you're crazy. Were you telling me that everything has been forward marching, everything's been progress, there hasn't been any setbacks, are you kidding me, are you not paying attention to history? I know the history, and I know the point of tonight's class, and that is that if we look more deeply, we'll see that everything has constituted, been part of a forward march, a march forward along the journey toward the Messianic era, and friends, this right here, let me find a good one, this right here is the key to the lesson. You see it? You see the key? This is the key to the lesson. And I mean it with all puns intended. This is a key. And a key, if you look at it closely, has ups and downs. You see that? It has grooves, it has ridges, it has pits, it goes up, it goes down. Are these random? Are these by happenstance? These by chance, or are they very deliberate and very significant? Okay, I gave, you an, I gave you an easy one there. It's very significant and very deliberate. In fact, the precise ups and downs of this key, I actually chose a key that I have no idea what it goes to. But this key will open a lock 
I believe. This key will open a lock. In other words, these, a lock, no, not locks, a lock. Things are getting so dangerous nowadays, they even have to put locks on bagels. It's crazy. Jerry, where are, Jerry, where are you when it, when it matters, when it counts? It's so good. I love it. Thank you. All right. So you like locks? All right. So these are good. I love you. These are the ups and downs. This is not randomly up and down. This is a key that unlocks something amazing, perhaps. History with its ups and downs. Don't think of it as a step forward and a step backward. Think of it as grooves, ridges, and notches in a key, all designed to open up, to unlock the destiny, to unlock Mashiach. It's not random. They're perfectly designed and perfectly aligned. So we have an ambitious goal tonight. I don't know that I've taught lessons before with, with, a, with a more ambitious goal. I'm not saying it's the most, but it's right up there with anything I've ever taught. This is a highly ambitious class because the point of this class is going to be that we explore together how everything that we've encountered in history, all of the ups and the downs, has been for a positive, for positive progress. So let me tell you how we're going to get there, how we're going to achieve this goal together tonight. We're going to do this in three steps. Step number one. Step number one, we're going to take a, a closer look at what exactly the messianic endgame is. We've talked about Mashiach in the first three classes, what it looks like physically, what it looks like spiritually, but we're going to take a much closer look. We're going to take a much closer look at what Mashiach actually is and, and, and what is really the ultimate objective of Mashiach. So that's going to be step one, a closer look at what Mashiach is. In step two, we're going to briefly we're going to briefly divide Jewish history into four major eras. We, obviously, in, in 90 minutes, we're not going to be able to go through every, sing, every single thing that's happened in Jewish history. We're going to divide history into four major acts. Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4. Each act is going to have an up and a down. So again, step 1, we're going to explore what Mashiach really is about on a, on a deeper level than we've done until now. Step two is we're going to chart the course of history. And step three, we're going to then apply what we've learned about the vision of Mashiach and see how that perfectly aligns with the ups and downs of history. I'm trying to give you like the skeletal st structure of this class without actually filling it in. I hope what I'm saying makes sense. I'm going to give you the insights and that essentially what I'm what we're going to do tonight is I will give you the core insights and then together we're going to apply it to, to Jewish history to see how it perfectly follow, how history perfectly follows the objective. You with me on this? Yes? In fact, if I do my job correctly tonight, if I explain well enough, right, what Mashiach really is, then you can teach this class along with me. You can actually go along with me and explain to me why this up had to be followed by that down. You with me where I'm going with this? You will be able to explain to me why it looks like this, up and down and up and down, if I do this first piece correctly. So, wish me luck. 
because this is where it counts. All right, and the goal is to have a solid understanding of what Mashiach is, what the vision, what God's vision of a Messianic era really is. So a, a, a really tight understanding of the vision and then to, to, to align that or to, to, um, to apply that to the ebb and flow of history. Please note that in this class, we are going to redefine some things, historical events, that we might have always thought in a different, we might have always seen in a different light. Don't, I ask you to keep an open mind as we do this. A lot of these concepts are taken from Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. So please be open to looking at things that you, that you know in a certain way. Please be open to viewing them and in, in, be open to viewing them perhaps in a different light. You'll see what I mean as we go along with, with tonight's class. Okay, so let's begin with step number one. What is Mashiach? What does God actually want? What's the end game vision? What is the messianic vision actually like? To understand this, we're going to look at a Midrashic teaching, which is one of the major sources of this topic. I'm going to share my screen and we're going to pull it. We're going to read if you have a book and you all should have a book at this point, you can follow along in the book. Um, if not, or either way, I'm going to pull it up on the screen. I'm going to ask one of you to read. So stay with me as I pull this up on my screen. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. Let me pull it up first. I don't have the page number until I can find it. Why can't I find it here? Ah. Here we go. Okay. Can you guys see my screen? Page 139? Yes? Okay. Page 139. God's primordial desire. Let's jump in. Jerry, please read text number one. Don't forget to unmute. There we go. When the Holy One, blessed be He, created the universe, He desired to have a home in the lowest realm. Thank you. So this tells us what the end game is. Why did God create the world? Why are we here? What's this all about? What is Mashiach? And here we have a very straightforward answer. And essentially what the Midrash is saying is that God desired to have a home in the lowest realm. What we're going to do now is unpack that statement, right? So, and, and I'm going to ask you to help me with this. So when God created the universe, yeah, why, what, where, like, what was the point? He desired to have a home in the lowest realm. What does that mean to you? What, what is God, what is God wanting? Jump in on this. What is God, what is God wanting over here? What does it mean that God wants a home in the lowest realm? What does that mean to you? Make room for everybody. Make room for everybody, okay. Um, seems like he wants a home for himself. So how do we understand that? What does that mean? He wants to feel comfortable in this world. Good, he wants to feel comfortable in this world. Good, what else? Have a relationship with, with us. I like that, I like that. I'm going to use that terminology tonight very heavily. So I like that you said that. Have a relationship with us. What else? Anything else? He wanted to be everywhere. Good, good, good. He wanted to be everywhere. Mark, what did you have? Yeah. Uh, starting in a lower world. Good. We're able to, ele we're able to elevate it. Good. 
to a higher level. Excellent. Which is something his angels can't do. Good. Beautiful. I love it. Okay, so I'm going to jump in with three points. Okay, three points. Because the way the mystics describe this Midrashic statement right here, text one, there are really three elements. And I'm going to give you the key words. Um, element number one is lowest realm. Element number two is home. And element number three is in the lowest realm. And let me explain. All right, there are three points, there are three objectives, three elements, three pieces to this desire of what God wants. Number one, God wants a home, God wants space, wants a relationship, where? In the lowest, in the lowest realm. What does that mean? We've explained in previous sessions, lowest doesn't mean geographically lowest, it doesn't mean furthest from God. What it means is a realm that doesn't recognize its own innate godliness. Remember we talked about that? It's lowest vis-a-vis -vis divine consciousness. It's not aware of its connection. Yes? Not if this sounds familiar. Yes? Yes? Okay. Good. Getting some nods. So, God wants specifically a home. God wants to be found. God wants to be present in a space that prior to that, making a home, was not obviously his home. Does that make sense? God wanted that a non-home become a home. What does that rule out? That rules out heaven, right? God didn't want heaven as the ultimate objective because that's not a lowest realm. That's a realm that's already a spiritual realm. God wants a lowly realm to be converted or really revealed to be a home for God. Okay, that's point number one. It's got to be in the lowest space. Point number two, it's got to be a home. It's got to be a home. What's a home? A home is where, let's talk about it on human level, on human terms, a home is where you feel most comfortable. Sorry, let me, let me clarify that. Your home is where you feel most comfortable. You're in someone else's home, you'll walk in, you'll kind of tiptoe around, you'll take off your jacket, you'll hang it up somewhere, whatever. You'll, you'll ask for a drink, you'll be offered a drink, you come to your house. I'm not necessarily saying this is the way it is or the way it should be, but I'm just using a little hyperbole here. You come into your house, the jacket goes off, you toss it on the couch, you go to the fridge, you knock down a thing of OJ from the, from the bottle, you're good to go. Why? Because you're comfortable. Hopefully, we're comfortable in our own homes. I'm not talking about kids and their parents' home. I mean your own home, your own space. What makes it home? The fact that you're comfortable there. Are you with me on this? Yes? Okay. So what is God? So vis-a-vis -vis God, what does that mean? God wants not just that he could tiptoe here and be welcomed formally. God wants to be fully present. It's like at home, you're fully, you know, I don't know how detailed I want to get with this. But at home, you're comfortable completely, you know, being fully present. So the idea here is that God wants such a home on earth where it's not just some elements of God are, are at home, but the essence of God. I'm going to explain what this means in more practical terms soon. But God's full and total being should be comfortable here and welcomed on earth. So let's go over the two points so far. There are three points of understanding this midrash that God wanted a home in the lowest realm. Point number one, it's got to be here in the lowest space in the darkest world. Number two, 
God wants to be found completely. God wants to be home in essence, in totality. And the third piece, and this is really important, God wants that this home be created by us, not by him. Because if he makes it home, then it's not a real home. Why is that the case? Let me explain. Now I'm going to shift an analogy away from a structure to a relationship, and it's going to make a lot more sense. Um, Ronnie mentioned relationship. I love that analogy, and I'm going to elaborate on that in a moment. Sorry, not in a moment, right now. When it comes to relationship, yeah, part of what makes a relationship, a relationship is the fact that you're relating to someone else. I know, t- I know you can have a relationship with yourself and, and it's, uh, whatever that means, but in a st- classic understanding of a relationship, it's one party, one individual relating to a distinct individual, right? So a relationship implies the other. So number one, God wants a relationship with an other, not with himself, but with an other. In the lowest realm, which is certainly an other, it's the most other you can find. That's point number one. Point number two, in a relationship, you want to be known completely. Don't just know what I do for a living, know how I feel. Don't just know where I go to work, know what I love, what I'm afraid of. Get to know me, not just my labels, not just my suits. Get to know who I am inside. That's a relationship, correct? Yes? In essence, that's the second point. And third point, if I force the relationship on you, that's not a relationship. If I coerce a relationship, what kind of relationship? It's not a relationship. A relationship by definition is, right, what, 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 what gives one pleasure in a relationship is knowing or feeling or experiencing that the other chooses you. Right? If you force them to choose you, it's not choice. It's not a relationship. Are you with me? It's a dictatorship. It's not a relationship. Three, I'm spending time on this because once we understand this, everything else makes sense. The whole history makes sense. God wants a home in the lowest realm, and that means three things. Number one, God specifically wants this in the lowest space. Not in heaven, but in a place that begins hostile to God. God wants that to be converted into into a relationship. God wants the enemy converted to an ally, converted to to one who, who loves God. God wants the lowest realm to be transformed. Number one. Number two, God wants that he should be related to, in essence, Not just in action, but in essence, which I'm going to explain a little bit later as we go through this. In other words, don't just know God as the creator of heaven and earth, but know, relate to God himself, so to speak. In essence, in totality. And the third piece is that we should be the ones to create this home for God. Because if God creates his own home, it's not a relationship. It's not what God wants. Okay, let me stop here for a moment and check in. Does this make sense so far? Yes? 
questions on this of, of understanding so far? Questions? I'm, I'm asking for if, if there are questions. Okay. So I want to take this a drop further. Um, give me a second. I want to show you. Here we go. I'm gonna sh I'm gonna share my screen with you and show you. Um, let's just go. Let's look look at a visual that kind of uh, displays this. Okay. Here we go. Um, figure four point one. This is on page one forty three. God's tri tripartite desire. I'm not saying that right. Whatever. God's threefold desire. That's a fancy word in the middle over there. I don't know how to pronounce it. A. God wants three things. Well, God wants one thing, but it's comprised of three elements. Number one, to be present here in the lowliest of realms. B. Number two, to be fully at home in this lowest of realms. And C. To have a home in the lowest of realms created by the inhabitants of the lowest realm that we choose to make this home for God. So again, it's got to be in the lowest place. It has to be totally for God or God's totality. And number three, it has to be chosen and created by us, not by Him. Which means the following. If heaven is in perfect harmony with God. Is that what God wants with this desire? If heaven is in harmony, yes or no? No. If this world, if you and I come to the realization that God created the world, God as creator, not as an essence, is that what God wants? Also not, because that's only relating to God. I hope this point is coming through, because that's only relating to God in function, not in essence. It's like relating to a parent as a parent, but not as a human being. It's only one element of who they are, but not the totality of who they are. So it's relating to the artist as a creator, but not as a, not as a, as a human being, right? So relating to God, in essence, a home for God means not just to recognize God as the creator, but to recognize God as God, transcendent, beyond creation. So if this world re embraces God as creator, that's still not the ultimate. And if, and if God creates, makes his presence known on earth, if God makes a home for himself, it, does that fulfill his, his kavana, his intention, his desire? If God's making the home, what's the answer? No. no. It's got to be built by us. Where? In the lowest of realms. And what's the end game? That God, the essence of God, is perfectly revealed. Again, think of a relationship or another, again, a parent, in this case, well, the truth is a relationship, uh, um, you know, a, a spousal relationship or, a, you know, that type of relationship could work because, again, you meet somebody, the first thing you ask them, so what do you do? And you get to know what they do and maybe their hobbies, but as you get to know the person, you get to know who they are beyond what they do. And that's the same thing here. Is there's knowing what God does by looking at the universe. Oh, I see a world that must have a creator so I know that God is the creator. Okay, that's one thing that God did. But who's God? Beyond creation. That's what we're talking about here. A home for God means that God is comfortable shedding all labels, just being perfectly present in essence beyond the label, the box of, oh, I created this one thing one time. So there's 
The home is here on earth, built by us for God's essence. That's what God wants. And that's what Mashiach is. That's what the Messianic era, that's the end game, right? All of this was created and history was put into motion all to achieve this goal of this world being made by us into a home for God. This is what Judaism teaches, what Kabbalah teaches from the Midrash, from Kabbalah, Hasidic philosophy. This is the core of purpose. This is at the core of what everything is about. Once you understand this, and I hope everyone's on the same page with me right now, but once we understand this, all of history makes sense. All of it. The ups and the downs. And this is going to be the daring idea, daring, like wild idea that I am going to advance tonight. Okay. I think we are ready to continue and start looking at history. All right. History, as I said, is a very big topic. A lot has happened over the last 5,781 years. For the sake of clarity, as I mentioned before, we're going to divide Jewish history, at least, into four primary acts, each with an up and a down. So Act 1, we are calling Paradise and Expulsion. Act 1 is the Garden of Eden, the beginning, right, where everything is great. And the second half of Act 1 is the fall. Fall from grace with the sin of Adam and Eve, tree of knowledge and expulsion. So we have the up, the great high of, you know, Eden and the great fall of sin of Adam and Eve. Then the next up, the next, the next act is the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and the matriarchs. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel and Leah. Right, you have the matriarchs and the patriarchs and they're you know, bringing divine awareness, godly awareness into the world. And then, Egyptian slavery, persecution. So you have the up followed by the down. Next, we have Exodus, revelation at Sinai. A tremendous up followed by the sin of the golden calf. Again, it goes down, it plummets. After that, we have the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and the two holy temples, and up, followed by destruction and exile and persecution, a down in which we are still in for 2,000 years. So we have four primary ups and downs. The up of paradise, Ganeid and Garden of Eden, the down of Adam and Eve's sin. The up of the patriarchs and matriarchs, the down of Egyptian slavery. The up of the Exodus and the Torah at Sinai, Revelation at Sinai, and the down, the down of the sin of the golden calf, the up of the temples, and the down of subsequent exiles. These are the four ups and downs. I want to check in to make sure that everyone's with me with this piece. Yes, this makes sense? Four ups and downs? Yes. Of course, goes without saying, I mentioned this before, there are many episodes, major episodes, within these four general categories but in lieu of time, and for clarity's sake, we're going to kind of look, take an overall look, a bit of an overall look at history, Jewish history specifically, the ups and the downs. So not so general that we're you know, missing these ups and downs, but we're, we're going to look at the ups and downs and generally chart how and see how it's all about forward progression. And the way we're going to do this is at, we're going to discuss each era and what happens in these time periods. And I'm going to ask you a question. Is this period of time, of history, 
Is it Mashiach? Is it Messianic? And if not, tell me why. And that's how we're going to roll through this. Are you with me on this? You'll see, you, you'll see as, I, as we go through it, the process that we're going to take. Um, I'm going to share my screen with you. And I want to show you in the book, you have, again, you, I, you all likely have the book. I hope you have the book at this point. If not, please let me know. Page 144, Peaks and Valleys, a timeline. So it's a little bit hard. You know what? Let me, um, let me minimize the page here so we have a better view on the screen. So we have creation and expulsion, right? So we have paradise and banishment. That's one up and down. The next one we have is Abraham um, and other patriarchs, followed by the descent into Egypt and slavery. That's the next down. Um, the next up and down is Exodus and the Torah at Sinai, followed by the sin of the golden calf. And finally, the, ta the tabernacle and temples, followed by exile. Again, these are four, the four major periods in, in history or Jewish history. Up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. If the visual helps, you got the visual in your books. Otherwise, I'm going to stop sharing and let's pick this up. We begin at the beginning. Garden of Eden. It's paradise, baby. It's a beautiful garden. It's a beautiful garden, not only physically, but also spiritually. Take a look, back inside. I'm gonna share my screen. Let's do some texts over here. Let's get some paradise texts. Um, text number four, Ray. Are you ready to jump in? Ray, text number four, planted in paradise. This is page 147. Yes. Yeah, you're, yeah we hear you, you're good. Okay. Uh, God planted a garden in the eastern side of Eden. And he placed there the man whom he had formed. God caused to sprout from the ground every tree that was pleasant to see and good to eat. So life is lovely. There's a paradise. There's a garden. Everything is amazing. Not only physically, but also spiritually. Text number five. I'm going to read this one. This comes from the Midrash. It says in Song of Songs, I have come to my garden, says God. The verse does not speak of a garden, Gan in Hebrew, but rather my garden, Gani, for the sake of implying Genuni, my marital home, the location that originally served as my primary residence. For was not God's primary presence originally located within the lowest realm? In other words, God was found in the Garden of Eden. So we have in the beginning this beautiful garden, this beautiful set, a lush luxurious, beautiful garden, physically and spiritually filled with divine presence. I want to freeze history right here and let me ask you the question. No, isn't it, is this Mashiach? Is this the end of what is, isn't this the fulfillment of what God wanted? A home on earth? Yes or no? Tell me why yes or why no? Jump in. Does it, let me ask a very specific question. Does it check all three boxes of God's intention? Is it in the lowest realm? Yes. Yes. Richard is saying no. Richard Crone is saying no. Why no, Richard? Because it's paradise. Because it's paradise. It's not a lowest realm. How can it be a lowest realm if it's paradise, if it's divine paradise? By definition, it's not tachtonim. It's not the lowest realm. You're dealing with divine paradise. It's a space of light. It's basically the equivalent of heaven. 
So it's not the lowest realm. Well, what about um, is God's essence known in this, in this garden? Well, that's a, that's a, we may not know that offhand, but I'll tell you that it, no, it wasn't the case. The creatures, including Adam, recognized that there was a creator, but they didn't know God beyond creation. They didn't know God beyond, they didn't know artist beyond the art. They didn't know architect beyond the, um, the design. They didn't know the, the creator beyond creation. They just knew we were created and God created us. So they, they were aware of God, but God in the role, in the limited role of creator. So it's not the lowest realm, because it's paradise, literally paradise. It's not a home for God's essence. And who was it built by? Who made paradise? God. God. So was it made by us? No. On all three counts, the original paradise, Garden of Eden, fails. Now, fails is a strong word, but it doesn't meet, it doesn't achieve yet what God wants, which is obviously why history keeps on marching forward, right? Because the objective has not been, if that was Mashiach, if that was the end game, well, everything would have ended right there, but it didn't. And the reason is not just because Adam and Eve messed up, but on a deeper level, because that itself, paradise, the original paradise, wasn't the ultimate of what God wanted. God wants a home for his essence built by us in a dark realm. And that's not what the Garden of Eden was by any stretch of the imagination. So what happens if you have something, if you have a structure that's getting in the way of what you want? Yeah, let's say you have, you buy a property with a small house on it, but you want to build your dream home, what do you do with that structure? Help me out, what do you do? Knock it down. Knock it down. Well, guess what Adam and Eve did? They blew up paradise. Now, you probably see what I'm saying now. Are you telling me that Adam and Eve really did something good? Did they have this in mind? This is a class for itself because there are some wild sources in Kabbalah that may say along those lines, but even if you don't go that far, let's just say it was a sin, it was a mistake, they did wrong and they got punished and Adam and Eve, that was very bad, we'll finger wag at them. But what happens as a result? What happens? Yeah, like the old cartoons with the little wire and the fuse and the little thing that goes like this, I doubt anyone blows up anything with that red thing with the handle, are you with me on that? They blew up paradise. What's the upside of blowing up paradise? Get, help me out. Practically, vis-a-vis -vis our conversation, what's the upside with blowing up paradise? What kind of world is it now? You get to build a world in the lower realm. Now it's a lowly realm. Are you with me what just happened? Thank you, Joy. Yes, you now have a lowly realm. Before you had paradise. And paradise is not where you build a home for God in the, lowly, in the lowest realm. That's not where that happens because that's a contradiction to that happening. So if you want a home for God, if you want the opportunity to build a home for God in the lowest of realms, you need a lowly realm. Can we order one up? Adam and Eve are delivering a lowly realm. That's it. You want a dark split? You want to, you want a dark, you want to start off in a dark space? Well, it didn't, but we blow that up. Now, you might ask the question. Well, if God wanted the backdrop to be pitch black. So why do you create the Garden of Eden? 
Kabbalah deals with this, and essentially the answer is to give us at least somewhat of an imperfect vision of what we're aiming for. Are you with me? It's like a snapshot. It's like a postcard of the Grand Canyon that you're holding in front of the real deal. So does it look like it? Yeah. Does it? Yeah, approximately. But it's, it's, a, it's a facsimile. I, I know that's... You know, it's a, it's a, um, a representation. It's not the real deal. Gan Eden, paradise, is a representation because generally speaking, it's a spiritual space where God's on earth. So generally speaking, it's kind of what we're going after. But it, in and of itself, did not achieve the objective because it wasn't built by us. It wasn't transforming a lowly space into a home, and it wasn't recognizing God beyond creation. Are you with me on all this? Yes? This, the only way this is going to work is if we have in mind the whole time there are three boxes that need to be checked to get the winning uh, formula, right? We have to check all three boxes. If even one box doesn't get checked, that's not, that doesn't fulfill what God wants. That doesn't satisfy what God wants. God wants a space of darkness to be transformed by us into a home for his pure essence. That's very, that's a very um, daring, it's a very um, uh, bold objective. That's what God wants. Was that in the, in the Garden of Eden? It wasn't. It wasn't low, it wasn't essence, and it wasn't us. It got blown up. I'm not justifying what they did. I'm not saying they had this in mind. But does it move the ball forward even as it seems? Like we're going backwards. Does it actually move the ball forward? Please nod. Yes. It moves it forward. I hope you get what just happened here. Typically we think we were there and then we regressed. Not according to Kabbalah. We weren't there. We weren't there. We had to have a lowly space. Adam and Eve, right, without getting into their intention, actually moved the ball forward. Took humanity and the world a step closer to the messianic ideal, to Mashiach, to the fulfillment of this objective. Yes? Any questions on this first up and down? Okay, that's. I hope that's. Yeah, Jerry, go. If this is a step forward, yeah, and if this is part of a grand plan, yes, that seems to be. We've made a mountain. We've made the wrong mountain out of that molehill. On one hand. And the second thing is, it seems it'd be easier just to start people off in the lower realm. Right. Yes, I agree with your second point. So number one, we've made a mountain of Ramola. In other words, why are we making such a big deal about the sin? Because on an obvious level, it's a ma massive step down. But again, mystically, on an objective level, on a purpose level, it actually needs to step down. It actually... Uh, yeah, I, I cannot, so you have to ask a brother. So it's a, it's a step down, which is devastating. And it's re, it is devastating. But the point here is that the step down, as painful as that is, is the next necessary step forward. 
It had to be a dark place in order to transform it. Now, again, your second point is, well, why didn't God just put us in a dark place? And I, so I, what I was, I don't, I don't know if I actually finished my answer from before, but it's essentially so that God didn't create a dark space from the beginning because if he did that, we might never find our way out of it. The fact that God originally created some sort of imperfect, not complete paradise gives us a bit of a postcard. It's like the treasure map with the X marks the spot. Yeah, it's not what it, what? That's that? I would be, you know, you're lucky you find it with that treasure map, but at least it guided you there. So paradise, Gan Eden, right? Garden of Eden is imperfect. It's not, it's not Mashiach. Clearly it's not. Mashiach didn't come then. That wasn't Mashiach. But it gives us an inkling. It gives us an imperfect overall vision of kind of what we're headed toward. The only difference is that it needs to be the product of our work, transforming it and discovering some, an, an even higher dimension of God's reality. But other than that, it's perfect. Other than that, it's, it's fairly accurate. So why did God put humanity in paradise? So that we have a vision, initially, of where we're headed. So, just to kind of recap. We, and the key to all of this is understanding what did God want with all of this? What was the point? Really, what is Mashiach? Like, what's the whole point? The point is, a home for God's essence in this lowest dark realm made by us. So, is that, par- is that Gan Eden, Garden of Eden? No. How do we get from there? To what God really wants, you gotta blow it up. You got how else do you get a dark realm from a light realm? It's not gonna be easy. That's gonna be a little bit, it's gonna be a little painful. Now, did they intend it? Did God orchestrate it that they make that choice? Depending on the sources that you look at, it might be. Could be. Could be. I know it sounds crazy, so then why were they punished? And what does that mean about free choice? And that, those are big questions. Those are too big, certainly to discuss, even to maybe wrap our heads around. But I'm telling you that there are sources, Jewish legitimate sources, that discuss this. There's a medrash that says, Adam turned to God one day and said, in your Torah which you composed 2,000 years prior to the creation of the world. It talks about what happens if one comes in contact with a dead body. Death was only visited upon humanity because of my sin. So that means that you intended that I sin, which would bring about death and the possibility for impurity. And Adam says to God, you set me up. And the Midrash says that God does not respond. So you take that for what, for what you think it is. Was it a setup? Adam and Eve are still culpable. They didn't know the setup. They still made a choice. But did it have to happen on some level? Did it move the ball forward? Forget it had to happen. Maybe that's, again, pushing the envelope that I don't need to push. But did it move things forward? It did. Because the, the, the purpose of existence is fulfilled when a lowly realm gets transformed by us to be a home for God's essence, and that wasn't there, blow it up. So it's blown up. Cut to stage, cut to act two. Act two is a dark, spiritually dark world. People don't know about God. They don't want to know about God. It's a world steeped in paganism, idolatry. 
It's a world in which there are mythical gods that are fighting each other and people are fighting each other. The whole thing is chaos. The whole thing is chaos. You have gods fighting with humans and, 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 and messing up family. All of the drama, if you want to read Greek mythology, knock yourself out. It's representative of what the ancient pagan societies believed in. Just absolute abject chaos without a higher belief in one God. So if, you, if God wanted a dark world to, to kind of transform, you got your dark world. This is now a place that is not compatible right now with God. It's inhospitable to God. Cue Abraham. Abraham enters stage right or left. I'm not sure where you enter. It's been a while. So Abraham enters the scene. And what does Abraham do? Rambam, Maimonides tells us, the Midrash tells us, the Talmud tells us, all three, that, my, that, that Abraham at a young age, even as early as three years old, what did he do? He looked up and he saw the sun and he looked up and he saw the moon and he knew people worshipped to the sun and to the moon and he said, they're not gods because one replaces the other and then wind blows this away and the clouds and the mountains and everything. There's got to be a force that is above everything. And he slowly but surely discovers God. Not content with his own discovery, he then shares it to anyone who would listen. With his wife, Sarah, he opens up a B&B, a bed and breakfast, right? And he feeds everybody. And he tells them, let me tell you about God, about the one God. They're like, ah, you're crazy. He's like, no, let me tell you. And he has tens of thousands of people that are on Team Abraham and Team Sarah. They're on his team. They get it. They realize that the whole thing, all these things, that, that, that nature itself is, 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 is gods that are warring with each other, this god fighting with that god. The whole thing is Meshuggah. There's one force, right? Like anything, if you read a book, there's an author. Right? You don't think the book wrote itself. There's a world, there's a mechanism with all these forces. There's one force above it, God. That was his conclusion. I've honestly, kind of a logical conclusion, that was his conclusion. Ah, oh, Mazel tov. So what do we have here? Piercing through the darkness, right? In a world, I can, I'll cue up my movie trailer voice. In a world that doesn't recognize God, one man stood alone to defy convention, and he discovers God, and he brings that light into the world. Great. Now we have somebody. Oh, and he did it to, again with his wife, Sarah, and then his son, Isaac, and his wife, Rebecca, and, and his son, Jacob, and his wives, Leah and Rachel. So they all go ahead, and they're all moving this, this idea forward, bringing God or revealing God, talking about God in an otherwise dark space. Ah, oh, beautiful. It's fantastic. It's geschmack. It's amazing. Geschmack in Yiddish means... It's, uh, it's wonderful. <sighs> Let me open up my screen for a moment. Let me open up my screen for a moment. Take a look at text number seven. Oh, I'm looking at expulsion. There's some good text here. This is the expulsion of Adam and Eve, which we spoke about before. And... Um, Here's the text, the mystical text from the Rebbe, 6b. The deeper reason why Adam got evicted 
was in order that God should have a home in the lowest realm. What I told you before, but you can see it in black and white. We're not going to do it now because I already spoke about it. 6B in your books, homework, or whatever, whenever you want to look at it. So again, checking the boxes, Garden of Eden, is it, in the low, is it a lowly realm, God's essence, and built by us? No, no, no. Okay, back to, back to Abraham. So Abraham emerges in a dark space. Okay, here we go. Take a look at how Maimonides, Rambam, describes the revolution of Abraham, text number 7. I'm going to read a little bit, excerpts from this. After this mighty personage Abraham was weaned, he began to ponder deeply. In other words, he was a young kid. Though he was, young, oh, there you go. Though he was a young child, he began to contemplate by day and by night. He had no teacher, nor was there anyone to inform him. Rather, he was mired in Orcastim's population of foolish idolaters. His father, mother, and all the people around him worshipped idols. He would worship along with them, but his heart was busy analyzing everything, and he gained a clear understanding. Again, this is Rambam Maimonides from uh, almost a thousand years ago describing the scene. Ultimately, Abraham arrived at the true way and understood the path of righteousness through his accurate comprehension. He realized that there was one God, that he created everything, and that there is no other God among all that exists. Abraham, although he started at a young age, was 40 years old when he became fully aware of his creator. He then used his recognition and knowledge of the creator to formulate presentations for the population of Rakastim, to debate them, informing them that they were not following the true path, etc. And he gained followers, and we're not, not going to do the whole thing. So Abraham begins a revolution. So my question to you is, is the Abrahamic revolution, is that Mashiach? Does that check all the boxes? Let's, let's go through them one at a time. Um, is Abraham creating, uh, is, 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 are we dealing with a lowly realm? Yes, perfect. Is Abraham doing the work? Is he creating the, is he, is he doing the work? Is Abraham doing it? Is he doing the heavy lifting? Abraham. Yes? Yes. Two out of three boxes. We're so close. We're so close to the, to the fulfillment of the purpose. But I need to ask the third question. Did Abraham discover God's essence or God as creator? You saw Rambam. Maimonides. What did Maimonides say? How did Abraham discover God? Through nature. God as creator. creator. He looked at creation and deduced there must be a creator. It's like he looked at the art and said, oh, there must be an artist. Did he get to know the artist? He got to know the artist through the art. But it's only through the prism of the creation that he saw the creator. Again, using the human example, it's like a child. This is the best example I can think of. A child, you know, in the younger years, seeing a parent only in the role, like, you exist to me, says the child, without saying it, you exist to me as my parent. Are you a human being with your own desires, wants, you know, uh, hopes and dreams and failures and sorrows and anxieties? Do you have your own reaction? I don't know. You're my parent. That's how I know you. I know you as I exist and I come from you and that's who you are. You're the one who spawned me. That, that's, that's how I know you. But, <laughs> but, well, I'll, I'll talk to you soon, Ali. But, here's the thing. JLI for kids. But, as one matures, one hopefully gets a bit of a broader perspective because one gets to know oneself and knows that they're deeper than what others see them to be. 
And one realizes that, oh, my parent is not just a parent, they're their own mensch, they're their own person. They have their own... Now, not that the role as parent is a minimal or side role, it's a very critical role, it's a very big piece of who one is, if they're a parent, right? Just like an artist, right, a big piece of who they are is the art that they've produced and created, and a lot of who they are is expressed in it, but is that the totality of who they are? No, it's not the totality. So Abraham discovers God the creator, but God the God, I don't know if that's right, but God himself, God itself, God in essence. By the way, this is not me saying this. Who am I to say what Abraham knew and didn't know? Don't think I'm all judgy on, 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 uh, on, on Abraham. I'm not. God himself says to Moses later on, I don't want to skip too far, but God says to Moses that I reveal myself to the patriarchs, but they didn't know my essence. But buckle up because I'm about to reveal that to you. So don't take my word for it. Just open up the Bible to the book of Exodus. God himself says that I didn't reveal, I, di I, was, not, I was never known in essence to the patriarchs and matriarchs. So, let's go back to Abraham. It's a dark world. Great. I mean, for, for, for our purposes, right? Um, Abraham's doing some tremendous light work, bringing light into a dark space. Fantastic. But is it a home for God? For God's essence? Not yet. So what has to happen? What has to happen, like we said before, if something is imperfect, if the model's imperfect and it's getting in the way, you got to blow it up. If you have what you had, sorry, if you think what you thought and say what you said and do what you did, you'll have what you had. If nothing changes, you'll have the same thing. So how do you get something different? You've got to blow it up. It says in Kabbalah, to go from yesh to yesh, you have to have an ayin ba'emtza. If, if you want to go from one reality to a radically different state of reality, you have to have a disintegration of the prior reality first. It's like, think about... Um, Think about a seed. You put a seed into the ground. The seed has to rot and decompose before it can produce a tree, before it can produce radical, radical growth. If, you just, if it never lets go, it's just going to be a seed. It has to let go of, of, of its current incarnation to become something else. Think about the uh, very hungry caterpillar, right? You have the caterpillar that transforms into a butterfly. It undoes itself and then becomes something else. Or think about how, just another example, you know, when, you, when you're learning an idea, if you stick with your prior understanding, like I, I asked you before in the beginning of the class, I, I, I essentially told you I'm going to challenge your understanding of, of historical events, which I already did with the sin of, I think I did, with the sin of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And I kind of alluded to the fact that maybe this was part of God's plan and, and ultimately a good thing. And I know some of you were like, I don't know how I feel about that. And that, which is why I asked you in the beginning, please be open to a new way of looking at things that, you th that you've known in a certain way. But my point is that sometimes to get somewhere else, you have to blow up what you thought you had. Because if you don't, you're just going to have what you had. If you want something else, it's like, you know, a Steve Jobs. If he would have said, you know, the BlackBerry is good. Remember BlackBerry? With the keys? BlackBerry is good. We're going to make it a little bit better. Then, 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 then this doesn't exist. And by this, I mean... This doesn't exist. This is, by the way, this is not an iPhone, but you know, it was moved forward by Steve Jobs and those like him, who said, 
you don't need a physical keyboard. And everyone's like, whoa, no physical keyboard? That's crazy. All right, this is where we're at. Okay, anyway, my point is like this. To, to, to create a revolution, you have to be ready to blow up what is. So let's continue. Let's continue. Abraham did some heavy lifting, which is why he is Abraham. That's why he's like amazing. But he didn't discover God's essence. He discovered God as the God of nature, discovered the force that controls nature is God, and that was worthy of acknowledgement and, 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 and even following even worship. So what happens next? That has to be destroyed. Nature itself needs to fail. That's what happens in Egypt. Cue up the next scene. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's family, his children end up in Egypt. Joseph, right? We're, we're fast forwarding through history here. And eventually that generation dies out. Next thing you know, slavery. And at this point, where is, where is the God of nature? You know where the God of nature is? Behind the whip of the taskmaster. Because you know what nature says? You know what nature says? The many are going to run over the, the few. And the mighty are going to demolish the weak. That's nature. Nature is the laws of the jungle, baby. Right? The mighty destroy and rule over and dominate those that are less strong. That's the rule of the jungle. So this is God. This is nature. I don't want anything from it. Moses comes to the Jewish people and says, God said, I'm, it's time to redeem you. And they said, they weren't listening. They didn't listen to Moses. I'm quoting a verse from the, from the Torah. Because of their shortness of breath and their difficult labor. Which in a more spiritual sense means they didn't listen to Moses about redemption because on some level they had lost a certain measure of faith. What they thought they knew about God was blown up. This is God. This is nature. This is the beautiful garden. We're out. Q, so again, that the rise of Abraham, the fall of slavery, Q, the next step, the next act, which is the Exodus. Yeah. I have a question. So, so the next act is, a, is above nature. Things that are... I'm a, yeah, we're about, I'm about to get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on. That, so I have just one question. So that's why the, 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 the burning bush, it was against nature. That was the first thing. I'm not going to get into all the... Yeah, the no. burning bush you could say, but I'm gonna, we're going to go a little bit abroad here. So we have the next step is Exodus, which is filled with miracles. Now you have 10 plagues. You have a splitting of the sea. And then we go to Sinai, Revelation at Sinai. And these, are, these can't be explained by nature. So you've gone from a situation where Abraham discovers the source of nature and worships the source of nature, and then nature turns against the Jewish people. And at that point, this is nature and this is God. Forget about it. So God introduces a new reality that God says, I am God. Again, the beginning of the Torah portion of Eira, um, the second portion of the book of Exodus where God says, I revealed myself to the patriarchs in one way, but I never showed them my essence. God says, but it happens now. And that was stated right before the onset of the plagues. God says that you're about to see who I really am. I am not limited to my creation. I wrote the rules. I'm not defined by the rules. Let me say that again. I wrote the rules. I'm not defined by those rules. I wrote the rules. Right? There's a natural order of things. But watch this. Plague. 
plague, splitting of the sea. Yeah, water doesn't, water doesn't turn to blood. Hold my beer. Yeah, water, a sea doesn't split. There's an app for that. Yeah, God says we're making it happen. Revelation at Sinai, heaven kisses earth. God reveals himself in his essence. God says at Sinai, and I quote the opening of the Ten Commandments, Anochi, I, Hashem Elokecha, are the Lord your God. I, who's I? I denotes essence. I is beyond names. Right? God says, I, this is me. Me is not my name, my label, my facade, what I do for a living, or what I created. My uh, portfolio. I is I. And God at Sinai says, I, this is me. Welcome. You're now interacting with me, not the creator, but God in essence. And that's why, by the way, at the first of the Ten Commandments, what does God say? How does God introduce himself? What's his resume? I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. Why? Why doesn't God say, I'm the God that created heaven and earth? Because we've already blown up that limitation of creation. Because for God to say, you know who I am? I created heaven and earth. That's a downgrade. That's the old paradigm, God is creator. God is saying, you know who I am? I'm the God that can play around with creation because I'm not stuck by those rules. I'm not just the creator. I transcend creation and I work within creation. At the same time, I'm beyond, I'm inside. I can rewrite the rules as we're going along because I'm not stuck to this paradigm. It's like an artist, this is gonna be an imperfect example, or a musician that reinvents themselves and creates a whole new genre of art or of music or of literature. Someone who completely, and says, now you get to see what I have inside. I'm not going to be defined by my creations up until now. I'm not going to be defined by those limitations that I've set for myself. Here I am with a new set of reality or bending reality. It's kind of like another example in a movie or a, a, movie or a show or a film, whatever, where the director steps out from behind the fourth wall and says, I'm no longer, it's no longer a close set. You're now having a relationship with me behind the, behind the camera. Okay. I'm just giving you different analogies, whatever sticks, sticks. Here's the point. Sinai, again, we're just lumping this together, right? This is act three, the rise. So we have Exodus, we have splitting of the sea, Revelation at Sinai, these miracles that can't be explained that are just beyond, just beyond anything that is, you know, that is plausible. God basically saying, this is me. I'm not stuck to this, what I created. Now you're getting to know me. Ten Commandments, Revelation at Sinai, this is it. So let's pause here. We're at an up, we're at, we're at, we're at a peak right now. This is good, good times. Let me, ask, let, me, let me ask the question that I've asked consistently. Is this, did this achieve what God wanted, the big vision? Let's go through, can't answer without going through all, did it check all three boxes. Number one, is, it, is the world now a home? Is God found, is God revealed um, at home in his essence on earth? Yes, yes. Is it done in a lowly realm? Yeah. Came from slavery. Yeah, came from darkness of Egypt. But was it created by us? No. Whoops. We're still two out of three. We're still two out of three. Yeah, we're still... Nice. We're still not there. All right. 
Hold on, Reese, one second. Um, give me a few more minutes. We're still not there. What? In other words, we're getting close. We keep on getting, it's like the whack-a-mole, right? We get one thing and then the other one shifts. So now we have a lowly realm being transformed, being, being impressed with the, the essence of God, but it's not coming from us. We didn't do it. We were like the, the bystanders that this was all happening to us. We were redeemed from Egypt. We were given the Torah at Sinai or the Ten Commandments at Sinai. It was done to us. We didn't do it. And again, now we're stuck. We're stuck in a paradigm that seems almost perfect, but it's not. So guess what has to happen? You know by now what has to happen. The TNT, you got to blow it up. What blows up Sinai? You know what happened. Golden calf, baby. 40 days later. Am I suggesting that it was a positive thing? Am I suggesting this? No. Does, is, does it say it in the, in, the, in the spiritual, in the Kabbalistic mystical sources? Yeah. Just like with the sin of the tree of knowledge of, of Adam and Eve. Did they intend it? No. Were they aware of it? No. But what was the outcome? It moved progress forward. Was it also on some level a step back? Sure, if you want to look at the surface. But if you look a little bit deeper, it had to happen. Because you had to break it. But let me explain why you had to break it. At that point, the rules were drawn that God is the one doing the heavy lifting of the relationship. In order to change that, we had to destroy that model so that we could choose God. Are you with me? God chose us. So now if we choose him, that's not fair. That's not real choice. To choose the one that chose you, that's real choice? Come on. That's fake news choice. What's real choice? Real choice is you choose. Yeah, you choose yourself. So we blew it up. We met. We destroyed the relationship. And then we fought back to rebuild it on our own. We built a Mishkan, a tabernacle. We built two holy temples. We built it. Built by us. A home for God on earth. Mashiach, Messianic era. Hold on. Does it check all three boxes? Let's go through it. Um, is it for God's essence? Yes. That never went away. Yes. Was it in a dark space? Perhaps. Was it built by? Yes. Was it built by us? <sighs> partially. And here's why I say partially. Because as much as it was us who rebuilt the relationship after we blew it up with the sin of the golden calf, as much as that was us, that was also God telling us how to make it right. God said, you want to make it right? I want you to build this house for me. And when we did it, we got positive feedback. Well, every step along the way, God says, oh, this is how you make it. These are the sizes. These are the measurements. And if you have a problem with it, I'll make it. It says that Moses threw the metal, the, the gold, into, the, into a fire, and out came the menorah. So God did some lifting over there, right? And there was also a lot of positive feedback where there were 10 miracles that occurred every day in the temple. You walked into the temple and you saw it. So I want to ask you a question. If you are living in temple times, let's fast forward times of King Solomon. 2,500 years ago. 20, actually, more. I'm sorry. Whatever, 2,800 years ago. Times of King Solomon, yeah? And you walk into the temple in Jerusalem and you see miracles in front of your eyes. And you're like, yes, I'm totally with you, God. Is that really you? Is that really you? Still not 100%. It's still lacking someone. There's too much positive feedback. There's too much on display. There's too much light. 
it's too much light that it's to make it really yours. It's still a little bit of God's doing. So what happens next? In other words, God wants us to choose the relationship. It's easy to choose when, if, when you choose, things are automatically good and immediately good. So God says we're going to change the script one last time. No temple, no divine revelation, no light. When you put in a mitzvah, right? When you light the candles, yeah, physical light. But you're not going to see the spiritual coins accumulate. You're not going to see a fire go up to heaven. You're not going to see the miracles, right? It's not going to happen. On the contrary, you know what's going to happen? Exile and persecution. And there are going to be people telling you, you can't be Jewish. And you can't light Shabbat candles. And you can't keep kosher. And you can't have a bris milah. And you can't have a Jewish wedding. And you can't teach Torah publicly. That's what's going to happen. And now the question is going to be, will you still fight for this relationship when everyone is telling you not? When everyone is telling you you can't, will you still fight for it? God wants to know one thing. The ultimate objective is God knowing one thing. Do we want him? Do we want it? So yeah, we built the Mishkan, we built the base of we built the tabernacle, we built the temple, but God kind of told us to do it, and there was a lot of positive re- uh, reinforcement and, and a feedback, positive feedback loop. The question is, are we still doing it when there's no positive feedback, when there's only negative feedback? When by being a Jew and practicing Judaism, now that means that we have to move to another country. When Spain and Portugal and England and, you know what, hundreds of, well, I don't know, hundreds, but... Dozens of countries. Almost every country that a Jew has been in has turned at some point against the Jew. And I said, oh, you want to be Jewish? You have to go somewhere else. Let alone you want to be Jewish worse than that. Right? Etc. Keeping it a little bit PG here. So here's the point. Here's the point. God moves it forward. This down is really moving it forward. And not, not minimizing the pain and suffering. Of course not. God forbid. But saying that the, in the pain is a step forward. Through the pain is advancing the needle forward toward the ultimate objective. Again, what is the ultimate objective? God wants a home on earth made by us. God wants us to choose him. Easy to choose when it's easy to choose. But what about when it's hard to choose? What about when someone tells us you can't choose God? Will you still fight for it? Will you still fight for God when the world says you can't? And if you say yes to God, that's you. And so we've been 2,000 years in exile. Day in, day out, we've chosen God. Under the worst of circumstances. Under the most trying of circumstances. But my friends, this is not the end. Because, as the mystics have taught us, there's still one more stage. You see, if somebody tells you you can't, that could also motivate you to want to defy the no with a yes. Are you with me? Somebody backs you into a corner, what is the reaction? To come back out, fighting. Somebody says, you can't be Jewish. What does the Jew say? Oh yeah, we'll see about that. But that itself, in an absolutely opposite way, is also external pressure. Are you with me? It's also not purely coming from within. I hope you understand what I'm saying here. The idea of a Jew for 2,000 years remaining faithful even with it being trying to be squeezed out of us 
One could say there's still external pressure being exerted on the Jew to assert their Judaism, a negative pressure. There's a positive external pressure, and then there's a negative external pressure, but both are still somewhat produced from outside. But God wants to know if we're going to choose, which takes us to 2021. This is our generation. A generation where, by and large, not every Jewish community, but by and large, most Jewish communities are living in relatively free societies. Societies which don't reward you for being Jewish, neither punish you for being Jewish. You're not, giving a, you're not given a candy, and you're also not given, you're not given the carrot, you're also not given the stick. Right? You're not being, some are, but again, most are not. So you're not being rewarded, but you're also not being told you can't, right? When was the last time in Atlanta, Georgia, somebody showed up, God forbid, obviously, and said, you can't keep Shabbos, henceforth. Didn't happen. So now there's no positive pressure, neither is there negative pressure. And now the question is, when God didn't tell you to do it directly, when you're not seeing miracles, when the other guy didn't say you can't, when you weren't backed into a wall, when no one cares if you do it or you don't do it, now the question is only one question. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? Do you want to keep Shabbos? Do you want to keep kosher? Not what anyone else is telling you what you can or can't do. What do you want to do? In 2021, United States of America, I'm in Atlanta, so we're going to go with that. Atlanta, Georgia, Virginia Highlands, May 25th, 2021. No one is telling you yes or no about kosher. What meal do you choose? And that is, in all of history, this, this moment that we live in now, unprecedented in its it's apathy almost. Unprecedented. No divine revelations, pomp and circumstance, but also no evictions and persecution. Purely up to you and I. This is where God's home is finally built in our choices to choose God. This is what constitutes the relationship that we have with God. Do we freely, on our own accord, not because we were pushed this way or that way. Do we choose God? It's up to us. This is the last stage. This is the last stage before the breakthrough. When we choose God, that is Mashiach. That creates Mashiach and enough of those actions will make it happen. This is Nisava HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Lo Dira That's the Hebrew of the Medrash at the beginning of the class. God wanted a home in the lowest realms of our choosing. Where does that happen to the greatest extent? Not in Gan Eden, not Abraham, not in Egypt, not at Sinai, not in Jerusalem with King Solomon. At us choosing on our own to create space for God in this world happens like never before in history right now. And I hope I've explained why that's the case. There's, there's no positive reinforcement with the temple. There's no negative reinforcement with persecution. Thank God. Now it's up to us. The Rebbe said, the Rebbe 
came from Russia, Ukraine, Russia. The Rebbe said that there were so many people who in the old country were so religious, so they would never eat something not kosher. They came to America, done. Forget about it. Toss away that. Why? Why? There are many reasons. I'm not negating any other reason, but I want to say this. One could argue that the fervor, the commitment in the old country was enhanced or reinforced by the persecution itself. When someone said no, the Jews said, watch this. But in a country that doesn't say no, doesn't say yes, doesn't care, it's a free country, do whatever you want. Now it's on us. And now we look at ourselves in the mirror and ask the question. On Zoom, it's easy. We ask ourselves the question, simple question. What do I want? And do I choose God? My friends, let's choose God. Let's choose to create space for God in our lives. Let's choose to create a space for God in this world. And when we do that, that's all that God wanted from the beginning. Thank you very much for joining me for lesson number four of This Can Happen. I hope you enjoyed the lesson. And I hope that all the loose ends were tied up. And I hope that you have a different view of not only the forward march of history, but also you have an insight into the incredible opportunity that we have today that no one else, no one else has had before. Let's take our responsibility seriously and let's, 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 let's finish a job. Thank you for joining me. Um, and I'll stay on for some more um, some questions or comments. By the way, I should probably do the big reveal. I told you at the beginning of the course that I authored one of the lessons. You might have wondered which lesson I authored. It was tonight's lesson. No, it was this one. It was this lesson that I authored. So I hope that you enjoyed it. If you didn't, now you can't say that you didn't because now you're, now you're stuck by, um, by saying yes. Yes. Your mother knew. I told Leah at the beginning, I can recognize his <laughs> There you go. There you go. She's my uh, witness. Perfect. Good. Beautiful uh, class. Very thank you, thank you. And, and I, all, all the time I thought that now in the pandemia, we have to stay at home and take care and be connection with the, with the house. And all the time, like, like I saw, like, what, what is a house? The place that you, you, you right. experience, you live, you take care. Wow. Um, it, it looks like Reba's showing us something. What is that? A drawing? Reba um, told me. This one, this one, the wrong ones, and these ones. It's this what one. is it? It's beautiful. And these ones, you can see the accents. I love it. It's so great. so nice. <laughs> she loves it. Um, yeah. So sorry, you were saying about pandemic and being at home, and what does a home mean, and that sort of thing. Yeah, for example, I. I work outside my house i never been really like a day during like 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 daily de things and now i laugh much more and that's connect me like with, yeah. with my house and i when you talk about the you have to create the house right you have to put time for that yes and make connection and take care and 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 open your eyes and a lot yeah. of things it's, imp it's important in, in general, the Talmud says, somebody that doesn't have a house 
is is not a person, and it's not a judgment. And I know, I know, it's a that's that's a we can take that in many negative directions. And there's no, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not meaning for negativity. It's only a positive. That a house is what really gives us a space to really be at peace with ourselves. If we're if we're not, if we don't have a space to really express ourselves, then we're always living a little bit, you know, squeezed. We're living not uh, not not fully present. So home is a place to really express oneself. It's, and it's very yeah. spiritually it's powerful. Yeah. yeah. I, I meet people that live on the street and they have a community there. And I'm very surprised how they, they take care of the place. Yeah. And they, they com- transform the place in a house. And a, a, yeah. it's, it's a big topic. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a place that you... You feel like that you like, feel at home, right? Exactly. Yeah. And you could feel at home in someone else's home, right? So I mean, it doesn't have to be any specific place, yeah. but it's but it's more of the 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 energy of it. Of course. Yeah. Of course. I love the class. It was great. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? Yeah, Richard. Yeah, I've got a question. Uh, if God is to to feel completely at home, relax, and to reveal Himself and to want to be revealed. Uh, there's something in the um, either the Torah or a half um, Torah about um, one of the prophets. My ways are not your ways. Yours, my ways are higher than yours. Yeah. I don't try to uh, attain my ways. Right. So will that change? I yeah. Mean, are we going to know God or is it going to be the same thing? There'll be a higher level. Good. Excellent. I, w- I want to add on to your question. Moses asked God, can I see your face? And what does God say? No man can see my face. And live, or no person can see my face and live. So, what's going to happen when Mashiach comes? It says in the prophets, that our teacher, our master, will no longer hide his face. So, it seems like that's the end game. But every time we do a mitzvah, we're seeing God. That's the reality. Every time we see a mitzvah, every time we do a mitzvah, we're seeing God, but we may not recognize it. It's like we see it, but we don't know what we're looking at, right? We need decoder glasses. So we're creating this right now. Every mitzvah that we do, every time we choose God, we are literally operating in a dark world, creating a space for God of our choosing, for God's essence beyond create. Because now we have the mitzvahs that are coming. No, God says it's I. So it's, it's, it's the essence. It's in a dark world. And it's us choosing. This is, we're living the dream. We have to stay the course. We have to stay the course and know that when we hit that tipping point, it's going to become apparent and obvious. It's like the, I, I think I used the example, it's like water that floods into the Titanic, right? It stays afloat for a while, but at some point, it's overwhelmed by the, by the tipping point. In a positive way, right, the light is flooding in. At some point, the facade is going to crack. It's just going to crack and it's going to be obliterated. And that's, okay, yeah, Adina Maka. Yeah, yeah, go. Oh. Um, I have a question about Mashiach. Is is I don't. It's a noun, but is does it mean Mashiach is a state, or does it mean like God, the Messiah? What Excellent. Mean? Good, good. Mashiach is both a state of being, like a, a a reality, and also there is a person who is going to be the Mashiach, not God. There's a person. Now, what's what, who's the person? What's the person next week? I forgot to mention what next week is about. Next week, we're going to look at 
I, I, uh, I always need to read from my notes. I, I write notes. I have 11 pages of notes, by the way, for this class, just so you know. Um, I take these classes very seriously. Huh? It could be my cousin Jules. Hey, Jules. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. We got the whole mishpacha here. So take... the Rosenhead gang. I love it. Hey. So next week... Awesome, awesome. Next week... Here, I'm going to read from my notes. Will we wake up one day in a glorious wonderland, or is redemption more of a gradual process, some of which we've addressed? We'll study the sources on the actual transition from our reality today into a world of revelation, and on the way, we'll also get to know the special human being, Mashiach, who will usher in the redemption. So next week and Lesson 5, we're going to deal with the persona of Mashiach and the state of Mashiach and kind of how those two interplay. But yeah, it's a great question, and we're going to get there over the next few weeks in our final sessions. Um, Thank a few, you very much. Pleasure. A few very quick announcements, and then I'm going to close it out. Um, number one, um, we just started a brand new Hebrew reading course. So if you're looking to brush up or learn Hebrew for the first time, either way, it's perfect. You can join. I can send you the recording for the first session. Um, it's online, so you can join at any time at your own convenience. Just let me know. We'll get you hooked up for that. It's called The Hebrew Course. It's on our website. Uh, number two, we have, um, for the next few Sundays, we have a beautiful program. Sunday nights, starting at 8 o'clock, we have great food and great films. Jewish films with a massive 18-foot outdoor screen. It's gorgeous with the Midtown and Pond City Market in the background. Massive screen, comfortable outdoor space, cool nights, and really fun movies. This week, it's an Israeli movie called The Women's Balcony. It's an acclaimed Israeli movie with subtitles, um, so you can enjoy it. And we're going to have Israeli food. Think like falafel, pita, etc. So we'll have Israeli food and then an Israeli film starting at 8 p.m. on Sunday. Fine. Sorry? You have chairs for Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know we said bring your own chairs. No, we have chairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have chairs. Yeah. And then lastly but not leastly, we, I, I'm, it just went up on the website today, and we, I think I sent out, yeah, we sent out one with the first email. We're running a course right after this ends, right after this ends on the 8th of June. The next week, we'll be starting a three-part series called Curious Tales of the Talmud. It's going to be looking at the most, um, the most wild and just outlandish, outrageous Talmudic stories and understanding their spiritual meaning. If you've ever wanted to do a mashup between Talmud and Kabbalah, my friends, this is for you. If you like stories, if you like life lessons, if you like mysticism, if you like Talmud, it's a no-brainer. It's called Curious Tales of the Talmud. We're doing a three-part series beginning June 15th, Tuesday nights, on Zoom from the comfort of wherever you want to join from. I'm going to put this up on the screen now so you can see what it looks like. Can you guys see that? Curious Tales of the Talmud. Legendary stories. Legendary lessons. I actually love, we have a great designer who, uh, her name is Cheryl. She works from Toronto. She's been doing our design for years. I think she did an amazing job on this, on this, uh, on this thing. You see the, the whale with the building on top. Anyway, Curious Tales of the Talmud. Legendary stories, legendary lessons. Launching June 15th, 8 p.m., live on Zoom. Same style as these. I'll share the materials. You'll have it. Bada-bing, bada-boom. All right. 
That's it for tonight. Um, I appreciate you being here with, I don't even know where I am anymore. Okay, yeah, I appreciate you. I stopped sharing and I lost the screen. Thank you for joining me tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. And it's great to be part of this journey with you. Laila Tov, be well, be safe, be happy, be healthy. Till next time. We'll see you soon. Yashatoa. Pleasure, pleasure. We'll see you guys soon. Fabulous. Take care. Thank you, thank you. Bye, everybody.